are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content. We think that ideology is something blurring, confusing our straight view. Ideology should be glasses which distort our view. And the critique of ideology should be the opposite, like you take off the glasses so that you can finally see the way things really are. When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. Philosophers call someone a relative, by which they mean it's a person that holds that any view is as good as any other view. My simple response to that is this. No one holds that view. No one believes that every view is as good as every other view. Welcome to One Dime Radio. Today I am here with Andrew Flores. He was a co-author on Theory Underground Volume 1, the book Underground Theory, which you can find in the description. I had an essay featured in there. Uh, I talked about it in my last pod as well. Andrew has an essay on there on therapism and a critique of modern therapism that is manifested by various figures you see in pop psychology, uh, and he critiques it from the standpoint of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And that's something he specializes in, and he talks a lot about it in his YouTube channels. Um, he's part of the Vanishing Mediators YouTube channel, which goes over uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis in depth, as well as the Big Cigarelli, which is his pseudonym, which, in which he gives some very helpful lectures, actually one on ideology that I particularly like. And uh, yeah, I, got, I could tell immediately that Andrew is one of those guys who, once he gets into a subject, he really masters it, really studies it very deeply. And these are a type of, for lack of a better term, organic intellectuals who very much appeal to me, the type of people I vibe with, who once they have a topic, they don't just casually get into it. They learn everything there is to know about that subject. And uh, I really find Lacanian psychoanalysis fascinating. And I think already from what I know, and I've been studying it for about two years, a lot of modern therapy culture has been, I've been quite critical of it just from that standpoint, not just because it distracts us from real issues, real economic issues, or individualizes social problems, but just the presumptions of a lot of therapy culture becoming whole and whatnot. That's kind of what we're here to discuss today from a Lacanian standpoint. Now, I don't know Lacanian psychoanalysis nearly as well as Andrew does. He is He's gone through all the seminars, everything. He's uh, very well versed in this subject. So we're going to talk about that today. Before we get into uh, the main topics we're going to go into and where to start, Andrew, would you like to uh, introduce yourself or anything that I missed? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, I'm an autodidact. I've, I've never been to university. I've taken some online classes so far. And due to the nature of my job, I'll be getting out soon. And looking to use the benefits and go to university to study theology and chaplaincy. I originally was going to go into psychology, but in America, and I'm sure from where you're at, psychoanalysis isn't as broad of an institution mm -hmm. like you would see in like Western Europe. And I just couldn't see myself doing CBT and just like administering people CBT or DBT and all these other modalities that are dominant that kind of reinforce the hegemony of capital. But yeah, I study uh, psychoanalysis. I, I undergo psychoanalysis. And so with my interest in chaplaincy and theology, I would hope to also 
be an analyst as well. So for me, Lacan and psychoanalysis is very clinically oriented, but I do like to use it in the way Zizek does as ideology critique and in the tradition of what's called Freudo-Marxism. I think it was originated by Wilhelm Reich himself, but you see other people kind of take it forward. Like I think Herbert Marcuse a bit, and then you get people like in the more artistic side, like Pierre Paolo Pasolini does a lot of Freudo-Marxism. Fusser has a little bit of Freudo-Marxism. So most of my stuff when it comes to Marxism is Freudo-Marxist based. So this essay ties the two together. So it's not strictly just from a Lacanian standpoint, it's also from a Zizekian Althusserian in terms of the ideology one. So with that being said, I don't really have anything else to introduce. I think you nailed it. Yeah, I, I first got introduced to you on a talk I did on Theory Underground. And then from there, I checked out some of your stuff. I saw the conversation you did with Michael Downs, Dave, and it was on a critique of Jonah Hill's documentary called Stutz. Was it called Stutz or, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the documentary, a Netflix original that goes over his, uh, his personal relationship with Phil Stutz, which is somebody that we, I talk about in that essay. We just thought that it would be a good bridge to show how we could critique it, also affirm psychoanalysis at the same time, critique the film for what Stutz does wrong from a, a psychoanalytic standpoint and what a psychoanalyst would, and also just to help people that are new or just aren't well-versed in the subject matter. And so from there, not only did the whole term therapism kind of take off and Dave thought that I would be the subject matter expert at this since I'm more focused on the clinic to take this on for an essay. And also just it, it coined that the, the term that we use, the young Zizekians. I think that was like our very first installment. But uh, yeah, yeah. The, I, I think, what didn't it come out? It came out like in two, I think. But yeah, yeah so pretty much he's just like one of the ones I critique in there. Yeah, and what's interesting is some people, it's kind of resurfaced because there's a controversy with Jonah Hill using therapy language to kind of justify a relationship who he had been criticized for. And the criticism more centered on using therapy language as a sort of excuse for a certain behavior. But what was missing and which you guys discussed was that the way the very assumptions of the way some people talk about therapy think about therapy and the practices themselves employed by Jonah Hill's Jonah Hill's therapist who he kind of depicts as he's like his friend in the documentary so uh, I, I thought that was very insightful very interesting and it kind of it, it made me uh, add a, a layer of depth to the um, uh, criticisms I had subconsciously of a lot of modern therapy, one that it's kind of becoming interchangeable with life coaching. A lot of listeners of the show might have critiques of modern therapy, such as the one a lot of us hear that therapy individualizes social problems, right? Mm -hmm. And that that is part of your critique in the essay, but it's a lot deeper than that. And that's why I think it's you should definitely get into that later in the pod. Mm -hmm. But it, we, a lot of us don't have the tools to articulate what exactly is wrong with the practices of a lot of what we call therapy? Because we use this term therapy. We mean a lot of different things. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's hypnotherapy. There's psychoanalysis. So I guess the first question is, why psychoanalysis? What, what, right. Why is psychoanalysis important? And what makes it different from a lot of other therapy? Right. And I think you nailed it by saying that you see the way modern therapy evolves into life coaching. Well, I think that's all what 
it could prescribe. It's no matter what, like psych assess, uh, counseling, different forms of treatment, medication, and you go through all these different procedures and processes, but like with your modern therapist, they're trained in psychology. They go through their whole entire university life getting their degrees. And all it amounts to is just, okay, I diagnosed you with a DSM-5. Here's your medication and do some mindfulness and all these other things that you could just do without going to a therapist, whether it's deep breathing, doing yoga, going on a hike, right? All these things that not only tend to pathologize every human, everyday human suffering, existentially it's the only where I could I could think of right now but also that it wants you to authenticate yourself and there's so much grandiose on your own personal narrative who you are and that's kind of what I talk about in there that it's just deeper than just that it conceals the social antagonisms and class antagonisms but also that it is almost like a new form of commodifying the self right it's like yourself and your own narrative is the commodity that we buy and in, in, in our suffering in our trials and tribulations, the therapeutic injunction of be yourself, enjoy yourself, be the best of, of you can be, be the best version of yourself uh, tomorrow, or don't worry about tomorrow. Don't focus on yesterday. Just be in the now. This sort, sort of what I call a super ego injunction, which I get from not only Lacan, but Zizek also is inscribed with your own salvation. So like you buy your own commodified self and the salvation that comes with it, the promise of a better tomorrow. But like why psychoanalysis and what makes it different, if I got your question right, is well, psychoanalysis gets a lot of a lot of hate and for various reasons because you get your psych 101 class and you learn about Freud and that he was just obsessed with sex and you know the thing like, oh, our unconscious is just like this basement of fantasies and sexual fantasies of us wanting to sleep with our parents type thing. And like the bastardization of what he calls the Oedipus complex. And then the fact that it's just considered a quack science, not just among psychologists, but even in the, the philosophical community too, you get someone like Karl Popper who believes that psychoanalysis is not a science, it's a pseudoscience because it's not, it can't fall under falsifiability. And then just the fact that in America and North American general, we don't have broad institutes that focus on psychoanalysis proper. You get like a sort of blend of psychodynamic therapy, which use some tools of it, but it's just watered down. But why I say psychoanalysis matters, not just as uh, a clinical practice, which differs from modern therapy, because it doesn't promise anything. Like it doesn't promise that you're going to be this changed person. In fact, it is more of a neg negative process in a sort of dialectical sense. It's like a negative dialectic rather than trying to accumulate experiences of feeling, sensationalism, follow your intuition, like all the stuff that we hear in modern therapy. Rather, it's very anti-intuitive. And I go into all that later on in, in the essay too, in terms of trauma, but that it allows you to not enjoy for the first time. And this is a very tricky term in, in Lacan, like the French jouissance, but we're all invested in a sort of libidinal enjoyment that undermines us. And in psychoanalysis, you have the imperative to allow yourself to not enjoy. You get to choose not to enjoy it for the first time. And the biggest thing, the number one rule is free association. So say whatever is on your mind. And you can't do that in modern forms of therapy because there are licensed clinicians that they have to report you for 
if you have thoughts of suicide or homicide because their license is on a thing. And most of the time, I'm not saying like all the time, I can't speak for it as a clinician. I'm sure each clinician is different, but you could see like these fantasies of homicide and suicide as they are fantasies that need to be kind of explored and that it's rather more of a displacement, not like what they actually want to do. And, and it's all determined on what, what's called in psychoanalysis, the transference. But the last thing on why psychoanalysis, and this is, I get this from Alenka, who Alenka gets from an Alenka essay Zupanchich. from Popkin's Show. Yeah, Alenka Zupanchich, by the way. Sorry about that. An essay on psychoanalysis and Marxism. I think it's like Freud and Marx by Althusser that psychoanalysis is a discourse that takes itself into account, but also that its object inquiry is within the antagonism itself. It, it doesn't see it from a neutral distance, like the way science tries to, to be empirically neutral. Rather, it is at the heart of the antagonism, whether it be the antagonism of class and Marxism or psychoanalysis and the antagonism of the symptom, that the symptom is also its cure. So there's a the very sort of sublated dialectical notion. And it's no wonder that G not only Zizek, but also Lacan sees a similarity in the movement and logical movement of psychoanalysis with the Hegelian dialectic. Yeah, let's not go into that yet. I'm actually enrolled in, a, in the For They Know Not What They Do course actually now. I've been listening to the lectures on that about Zizek's book and the interplay between Hegel and Lacan. That's a fascinating discussion in itself, but like that might, some audience, some of the audience might yeah. just be like, whoa, I don't know Lacan or Hegel. They're like, I, I'm assuming kind of a lot of people don't know much Lacan at all or know a little bit, certainly have heard of him, right? But yeah, when you're saying why psychoanalysis, you brought up a point which is often the which is the fact that people disregard psychoanalysis due to the fact that it's not uh, empirical. I mean, I took a lot of psychology electives in university, and this is one thing I noticed is that psychology was almost indistinguishable from cognitive science, and so, which is a class in the hard sciences. I took classes in yeah. both, and very similar. And it's very, it's people might expect some, something like Freud's theories to be taught there, and I mean, very watered down surface level bastardization of them is often taught and then ignored after that, right? And someone might say, well, yeah, I mean, what we tend to see is this sort of empirical shift towards empirical behaviorism, which you noticed, you noted in your essay, as well as a, in terms of the therapeutic practices, however, that, that are very big now, very hot now, is sort of stuff that's based on ego psychology. I thought that's a, a good way to, I think, maybe a point of focus on because ego psychology, which is not what a lot of therapy today is formally called, because of course, ego psychology was a formerly a, originally a Freudian practice that came in America. But a lot of you say like a lot of psychology today, therapy today is ego psychology. And you brought up transference. Now, I think that is like a very interesting critique right there about why a lot of therapy today, which kind of has this buddy to buddy relationship. I'm your mentor. Can you be, you can be friends with your therapist? Why doesn't, why it's actually, that just doesn't work from the standpoint of psychoanalysis because if you're a life coach, sure, but from a standpoint of analysis, it doesn't work. Why does that type of therapy, which is like self to self, I'm going to be your mentor. I'm going to give you advice. What's wrong with that type of ego psychology? What is ego psychology? And, What's what's transference? 
Right. So ego psychology, as you said, it, it is a form of like Freudian revisionism. And it started with Anna Freud and seeing how rather than the unconscious, which was the object of psychoanalysis, the Freudian unconscious, we'll get into that later from the questions that you have, that we get this transmission into America. And I wouldn't say that today's modern forms of therapy are ego psychology, but what I call it, it's like a sort of inversion of it because it's not focused on this object called the ego. You don't really hear the ego being used in CBT, psycho, maybe some forms of psychodynamic therapy, you will use it, but like other forms of modality, existential therapy. But why I say it's an inversion, because ultimately what it calls for is the sort of healthy self, right? So what is the self? That And so this sort of self-actualization, making you stronger and resilient is the same type of thing that was used in ego psychology, strengthening your, the, your defenses of your ego from any sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, struggles or obstacles or any type of tension whatsoever. And so as you pointed out, this, the way that therapy is formed as like the sort of buddy system, which I think is really funny because you do hear that. It's, see, you could think of me as like your other friend. Right. By then, well, you don't have a free association, so you don't see symptoms manifest. Most of the way that symptoms manifest for psychoanalysis are totally different in the way that symptoms are diagnosed. But the therapist is already prepackaged. They've already diagnosed you before you even walk through the door because of certain psych assessments that they received from you, your insurance or whatever, paperwork. So they already know who you are, diagnostically speaking. It's just about, oh, let me hear your life story. But at the end of the day, I already got you down. So you're just here to have a friendly chat. And I'm being very crude, but, you know, anecdotally, you could talk to a lot of people that are in therapy and it, it, it's really like that. This buddy system doesn't work because, well, it, they're giving you advice. And while some advice, some proverbial wisdom may be a little helpful, it, it could kind of cheer up your day, but that doesn't get to the heart of, of what's wrong with you, or you go in there because you think something's wrong with you. And actually that's not really the problem, something totally different, but you wouldn't know that if it wasn't for the question you have transference and what is transference and mm -hmm. why do I think that is much more effective compared to a workbook advice or like thinking skills in, in, in forms of therapy. Well, the transference is something that was discovered by Freud and Freud wasn't a psychologist. Freud was a neurologist and he had as an excellent essay that's hardly read. It's called, I won't go into it much. It's just called the project for a scientific psychology in which he develops a model of neurons and how excitation forms through environment and the development of psychopathologies. It's a really interesting essay too, but he's working with this guy named Joseph Breuer who has a patient named Anna O and it was Anna O who by her insistence to talk, founded the theory of well, what would be psychoanalysis or the, the practice of psychoanalysis through what's called the talking cure. And through the talking cure, the transference develops. It's the ability to talk and see the doctor as a, what Lacan would call a subject supposed to know, supposed to have the key to my desire and also to my illness and knowledge. But it doesn't even go that far because we could even say, well, can't you just say a therapist has that? Well, there's something interesting about the dynamic of the transference. And it's what Freud would call in an essay in his metapsychology papers, transference love. 
in which the deeper we get into the transference, it mimics the feeling of what would be called love in which everything kind of comes out and projects onto the analyst as it would be for a love encounter, you know, this spontaneous chance act. So these punctual moments of chance acts in which we get the um, unfoldment of the unconscious through the speech act. It's kind of a lot, but why I think this matters is because it gets at the symptoms in these moments. And over time, you start to encounter what would be the trauma, the symptomal trauma, because for psychoanalysis, the trauma isn't something that you feel. It isn't an event that happened in the past. Ra rather, it's a reconstruction of something in fantasy. Yeah, you're jumping um, into something I wanted to get into after, actually, like yeah. tra trauma discourse, because we we'll get thing, more into that. I think it's, it's worth clarifying, like what transference, because okay, I'll give you a short, like, ex how I think of what transference is, and you can correct me or add to it if you um, think it's missing something. The way I think of transference, right, the, uh, the concept coming f starting with Freud, right, elaborated by Lacan, is uh, basically that the, the analyst needs to kind of have an impersonal role uh, of a detachment from the subject. And yep. they, they kind of need to, that's why they're not supposed to talk. That's why it's in some cases they're actually supposed to sit in behind the patient not yeah. even look at them but they're supposed to li listen there and the reason why is because if you don't if there's a detachment there one the subject the patient can kind of almost project whatever onto them because there's not a lot to analyze there's not a lot to relate to and because of that they kind of treat them almost like they have they're more likely to anyway treat them as if they have a sort of special power attribute all this to them and that actually allows them to i won't say open up but they, it's not an ego-to-ego ego communication. So if they see yeah. them as like an individual like themselves, relatable, they're talking ego-to-ego. Ego, whereas if they're it's a detached person, they can kind of, one, they're likely to believe in their practice because of this, attributing this kind of magical power to them. But also, they are literally likely to just talk and slip, I guess. Like talk and yeah. slip. The analyst is able to pick up on that easier as opposed to ego communication no. yeah and that was the thing i was going to get into is that well that wouldn't happen if you don't have the imperative to say whatever is on your mind because free association allows for that transference to happen in the way that you explained it and well like the classical way would be to have the patient lie on the couch and then the analyst to kind of like not be seen and i think some people still adhere to that but like you'll have some analysts that kind of have like punctual like this sort of suggestive like i'm listening and it seems like i'm agreeing with you but only to allow you to hype you up to speak more and more about this sort of association than you would in these other forms of, uh, of therapy because like i said earlier they've already diagnosed you with the paperwork that they get from you now it's them coaching you and giving you skills so and it's kind of, of grandiose because i mentioned a psychoanalyst he specializes in autism but he's got this lecture series that he's doing his name is leon brenner He's, oh, he's, he's great. Yeah, this thing. And it, it, it's aimed at ego psychology, but it does seem to apply formally with these other modes of therapy. It's like the therapist seems to have an access of reality of what is right and what is wrong and what is healthy and that you don't. So let me tell you what reality is and 
how to live a healthy life. And that's what you're supposed to do is just listen to me. And so there's no room or leverage for the patient to free associate. And so you have to really, in a sense, be duped to, it's not a leap of faith, but like a dupe to know that free association allows not only for the transfers to happen, but mm-hmm. for this thing. And that's why it's anti-intuitive. It's not focused on uh, evidence-based. And that's another thing, a really good line that I like from the capitalist unconscious by a Slovenian philosopher who's a Lacanian, uh, Samo Tomšić. He says that it, it, psychoanalysis gets criticized, the therapy culture or by like modern forms of therapy, because it doesn't meet the needs of the market. And that's another thing too, is that this, while it seems like it's a practical thing, is that it's really just something that is effective and administrative to produce results for the market, for the insurance company. But is it really effective in its totality? And most of the time, you'll see people that undergo CBT end up coming back because their symptoms become worse, or that wasn't it. They help in crisis. But in long-term things, they're not effective. Like, sure, if you're having a panic attack and you don't want to go to the hospital and you feel like dumping cold water in yourself cools you down or doing a breathing exercise, sure. But that doesn't get the heart of your symptom. And psychoanalysis takes years. And sometimes people stay in a psychoanalysis like for half of their life until they finally are like, okay, I think we could terminate the session. And I think that's also a main thing why you don't see it talked about more besides of it being promoted as like a sort of pseudoscience or quack science or Freud just talks about sex. Well, speaking of science, I think a good example of the ideology of academic mainstream psychology, not I wouldn't say pop psychology, but mainstream psychology is Dr. Todd Grande. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's the dude with the glasses, right? Yeah. Like he's like an academic, he's a psychologist, but he's very, he, he thinks of everything in this very empirical way like i remember when he was reviewing i want to see his opinion on gestalt therapy and uh, he um was talking about it saying well studies say it's this effective compared to this effective and i'm thinking like what do you mean by effective like people feel better after how long because that's what lacan picks up on with the death drive because freud keeps finding that patients who had their problems fixed would frequently fall back on this repetitive symptom and that they would almost self-destruct they would almost awareingly uh, they'd be fully aware and and do what they knew they weren't supposed to be doing they would just fall back on their old ways and that's like i guess beyond the pleasure principle right yeah and yeah, then point. yeah and then and then lacan picks up on that with the death drive and so i guess th- that brings us to something very key which is the death drive and something that a lot of mainstream psychology and therapy miss no because you're yeah. saying that cognitive therapy is not effective and I can just imagine person schooled in mainstream psychology immediately t- waiting to type saying, yeah. well, studies say that it is effective compared to well, what? And I guess the question is twofold. What does mainstream psychology lack with regard to the death drive? And why does that matter so much? Why does that matter so much for psychoanalysis? And the second, I guess, maybe answer that one first, actually, is what is psycho- psychoanalysis trying to do? Because mm-hmm. when we talk about effective, is it to feel better? Is it to resolve a symptom? What's the goal of psychoanalysis? And so this also brings up, is psychoanalysis also a science? And I would say that, well, it's not an empirical science. It's not a hard science. It's something that, I mean, Bruce Fink, uh, an American Lacanian, would say it falls into a conjectural thing. But 
I would just keep it kind of simple and say it's both something that undermines science and it's also an anti-philosophy. So it can't be put into either or. And yet, for some reason, we've seen how psychoanalysis as a discourse has been very fruitful for social theory, Marxism, as I pointed out, and philosophy. Spe speaking of like Alenka Supancic, Slavoj Žižek, Adrian Johnson, etc. But to keep it on point, I think what's funny about that psychologist, that YouTube psychologist that, that you mentioned, it's with the way that these psych heads act and how they kind of put their practice on a pedestal. It's they, him specifically, he makes all these videos and tries to see everything from a psychology standpoint in which it's like, well, let's look at the psychology of Donald Trump and see maybe this is why America's. So if we looked at someone's psyche in childhood, then we would understand not only their life, but why they did this choice that affected the entire world type thing. So it's, it has nothing to do, again, with the social antagonisms, systemic structures, but rather just, oh, it's just reified into this person's psyche and the choices and biases that they made. And it's a mystification. And I would say to your question concerning the death drive, well, there is, a, and I'm not really fully influent into this, but I know that there's this side field of or psychoanalysis mixing with the hard sciences. It's a psychoanalysis and neuroscience. There's somebody that, that's in Pittsburgh, Duquesne University, and part of Derek Hook, another Lacanian who's interested in this stuff. So definitely would look into that for anybody that's interested in that. But the death drive is something that's interesting because when we talk about this in relation to not only psychology, but science, this is something that Freud has been investigating for a long time. I mentioned that essay, A Project for a Scientific Psychology. And so one of the things that he talks about is entropy. He, he wants to try to scientifically talk about neuropathology. And so he uses, I think this is a kind of genius. Oh, I know him. Derek Hook. Yeah, oh, yeah. I've watched this guy's lectures before. Yeah. yeah, he's a really, he's really good. So yeah, anybody sorry to interrupt, man. No, that's fine. I think like, if anybody that's interested in wanting a more relaxed intro to these dense concepts, I think Derek Hook is very wonderful at breaking this stuff down. Uh, the key concepts too. So Freud, being the scientist that he is not trying to, as he's kind of criticized, over-biologize things. Rather, instead of him doing biology in this essay of the neuron, he uses quantum mechanics models of thermodynamics. So he thinks that we're built up with a lot of entropy and excitation, and the point is to release it. And then we get into middle Freud, the 1914-17, after his essays of sexuality and his theory of libido, which would be drive. He critiques in his essay on science, the essay is called Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, or the proper translation, The Drives and Their Destiny, that science as much as it likes to privilege itself for its discoveries, always has to rest on a sort of presupposition that can't be proven scientifically. And so he points out the um, notion of instinct is not really scientific at all. And for us, we don't have instincts, we have drives. Um, and so the aim of the drive is to release excitation or unpleasure. And so that's what would be his pleasure principle. It isn't to gain all these pleasurable hedonistic experiences like, oh, we're all just some hedonist and so on. It's that we have built up entropy and the point is to always discharge it 
because the world that we live in, we intake energy or whatever. And so going back to what you pointed out about patients feeling better and then leaving and then coming back, this is like the practical way to see his topology of using different scientific discourses or different models for what you would call the psychic apparatus. And that, well, if psychoanalysis is helping people discharge this excitation, why are they coming back? I thought that they were cured. And so the death drive, as he would call it, or the death instinct kind of seems to undermine Freud. Not only, as he says, is the ego not a master of its own home, but now Freud, because of the, de the death drive, isn't the master of his own theory. And so that's the problem. But what the death drive is, this repetition compulsion of this symptom to come back in various forms. And it's shown in dreams and their formations, in fantasies. It's not this dramatic, I act out and undermine myself. Rather, it's just the way that a symptom can manifest in various ways and continue to repeat. And it was only thanks to Lacan and reorienting psychoanalysis, not from a topology of entropy or the just the pure, the model that we're used to, ego id superego, of course, he uses those terms. It's through understanding it from structural linguistics. That's kind of known by Ferdinando Saussure. It's like, why is that? Well, what is psychoanalysis? But a talking cure that, that looks at the patient's history and how the patient constructs it through the free association and through the transference. And through that, we notice repetitions of certain resistances and obstacles that the ego keeps from encountering because it's avoiding the manifestation of what is called unconscious. And the unconscious manifests in speech through the famous slips of the tongue, right? The Freudian slip or through forgetting this forgetting of certain names of certain events. And this happens because of repression. I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm kind of going in a lot, but like the point is that the death drive, I think is also important, not just as a, a concept in psychoanalysis, but also that the death drive in itself undermines the aims and telos of psychology itself, because psychology wishes to any science find a unified theory. I don't see psychoanalysis as a sort of unified theory, but rather something that is always taking itself into account and therefore can never be complete. Yeah, you mentioned that the psychoanalysis is counterintuitive, and that's mm -hmm. partially why people have trouble with it and why the opposite, why other forms of therapy that are more simplified and appeal to our common sense are so much easier to digest. And I think the death drive is probably the one of the most counterintuitive concepts in psychoanalysis. The way I like to understand it is there's the drive and the desire, right? You're talking about this, but I'm going to try to maybe give a brief synopsis to the listener who doesn't know anything. Yeah. And you can so there's two, like build off that, There's two distinctions of the death drive. We have the way that Freud understands it and then the way that Lacan resuscitates it. I would just keep that in mind. So Freud never uses desire. He would use the pleasure principle. And I defined it as the release of excitation right. to, for unpleasure, right? But that act produces more unpleasure because we can never get the satisfaction. And in that process, that is the death drive of compulsion repetition, constantly repeating. 
but for Lacan, it's the distinction between desire and stuff like that. Yeah, I think his terminology is a lot more clear. And it's also because Freud, in the discovery of the the death drive, didn't quite know what he was discovering, right, according to Lacan. Yeah. And so the, the way I understand it with Lacan's terminology is, right, there's the drives, which is what, sorry, there's the desires, which is subconscious. It's not the same thing as like a wish, right? We consciously want desires usually... Uh, it's something we're ch we're chasing where we have a desire but once we get what we desire then you your your desire shifts elsewhere right it continues to shift elsewhere and then, but the process of not getting what you want is this enjoyment right because when you get what you want you have this state of pleasure you're comfortable the death drive is to undermine that process of getting what you want so you can keep having that enjoyment enjoyment being enjoy enjoyment not in a colloquial sense enjoyment in the psychoanalytical sense being right not getting what essentially not getting what you desire this feeling of desiring itself as such yeah and it's like an excess and yeah i would say that for desire though it's the way in which it's constructed through this process of experiencing what lacan would call lack right that the part of our being is that we feel we experience a form of lack but it's misrecognized in the form of something of an object or something that we would desire and this just this is kind of like where psychoanalysis differs from a science, a hard science like psychology, because psychology presupposes like a mind, something that's fixed and what's inside me. And this is where psychoanalysis, a la Lacan, seems to kind of match with philosophy in the notion of subjectivity. And that subjectivity is not something that is subjectivism, that it's my own personal mind. Rather, it's something that is exterior, that I can't have subjectivity without the other. And so does the famous maxim is desire is the desire of the other. So my desire is aimed at what the other has that the other must enjoy their jouissance. And that by obtaining that through them, that I may have that satisfaction. And so this is how the ego functions. So desire though, some of it is in a sense unconscious, we do have the conscious feeling of lack. I will say that, but it does distinguish from drive because drive is the sort of repetition compulsion that keeps that object at a distance, whatever it is. And we don't mean like a physical object. We just mean the sort of representation, yeah, a representation even in the unconscious that will manifest in, in dreams. So you mentioned wish and I've been reading a lot of different psychoanalytic literature from the Lacanian Freudian standpoint. And even the understanding of wish fulfillment is obscure and misunderstood because this comes from Freud's interpretation of dreams in which he develops his notion of kind of like his preliminary notion of the unconscious because of the dream work and how unconscious formulates through there. And so it's not, oh, a dream, this dream just means that you have an unconscious wish fulfillment and stuff like that you secretly want this but rather it's like this weird contradiction of both obtaining the thing and also wishing for the thing simultaneously so both having the wish for the thing and not having it and obtaining the thing and having it so it's like this weird sort of parallax he calls it kettle logic and so we see how the unconscious manifests symptoms in this Kettle logic, which is kind of simple. It's a guy borrows a kettle and returns it to somebody and it's broken. And the guy is, hey, you messed up my kettle. And so the logic goes, well, the kettle was not damaged when I 
borrowed it from you. The kettle already had a hole when I get, when you gave it to me. And then the third one is I never borrowed a kettle at all. So what kettle logic means is that these three statements on their own are very valid, but when they're put together, they're very contradictory. And so what that shows is that desire, its aim, and the symptom act in this way, right? They manifest. So this is how the unconscious works. And so this is the importance of bringing it out in speech. And I think there's another way that we see how psychoanalysis is very anti-intuitive and anti-empirical in that sense, because it's we're working at like this psychic structure formally. I do want to say just because I can almost as a rebuttal to those who are still probably typing the fact that it's not empirical, right? It's not scientific. I mean, okay, so an eye-opening experience for me that made me really question the empirical element of psychology is when I actually was part of psychological tests themselves. It was part of if you wanted a like some extra grade, whatever, you could enroll in these studies and be a subject for them, and they would base these studies based on what you consciously thought of that day and it's this is empirical studies and it's based on mm. my feeling but i say my interpretation of the words on that page that they're asking and like people who assume that one can just simply empirically understand subjectivity one can objectively codify subjectivity they assume a kind of they put way too much faith in human methods and of measurement and and kind of don't take the fixation of language for granted, right? Mm -hmm. Or sorry, they take the fluidity of language for granted. And I guess that's, I would say the thing about psychoanalysis that I think really appealed to me, particularly with Lacan, is that is the whole uh, concept of the symbolic order, the fact that's factored in, because that's where, you know, Lacan really is able to incorporate what the a social psychologist that they call nowadays, but really sociologists back in the day, like Erving Goffman mm-hmm. and George Herbert Mead, which which is a field I got interested in for a while prior to psychoanalysis. They were kind of like analyzing this very social dynamic of meaning, language, and that the desire you can't take people's desire to just be at their at the level of their self, or that mm-hmm. the concept of this self being very dodgy. It's very subject to encounters and groups and whatnot and this is though taken this is factored in Lacan's theory with the symbolic order and I guess I don't know if you think this is too much of a departure from the death drive but the symbolic order is obviously like a crucial concept should we get right into that well yeah I think for us to understand the Lacanian use of the Freudian death drive it would be appropriate to talk about the three registers that Lacan talks about and this is symbolic imaginary real yeah this is crucial for understanding why not only language matters, signifiers, as you'll call it in the Caesarean sense, and then the unconscious and the death drive. Because when we talk about, again, let's go back to ego psychology. They focus so much on the ego, the affective dimension, the sort of way that the moods and emotional outputs and inputs are, and that we just need to see this transferential relationship as a one-to-one however you feel about me, however you're feeling today, like that tells me something, right? And Lacan sees that, no, like this dimension of the ego and its moods and its feeling are very asymmetrical to the way that the patient speaks. 
just because you feel that way and then you're speaking, it's there's totally something different. And this is why he's obsessed with like puns and jokes, just like Freud, but like in the way that language says something that feeling doesn't. And I mean, I don't want to get off topic, but like, I think this would help show what the symbolic means in this sense for Lacan. And I'll go into it in a more theoretical sense. But like he talks about this thing called the subject of enunciation versus the subject enunciated. So you have the subject of a statement, I am this, and then the enunciation is the speaker. So let's say you give an essay uh, presentation in, in school and it's terrible. Nobody really applauds and you can see that the professor's face is unamused. They could say, oh, that paper was trash. Right, done deal. But let's say same thing, you do it and it's crap. Professor says, wow, that was really interesting. So the feeling and the statement are totally different, right? And so this is where we get the importance of the way that the unconscious can articulate itself, even in conscious speech. And so the symbolic order for Lacan is not only just words or language, but it's law. It's the way that a social or a society is structured around a law and he gets this from Claude Levi Strauss, who's the proponent of the symbolic order, just Lacan appropriates it differently. That sort of prohibition and what is allotted and what is enjoyable is always what dictates a society or a alliance or a clan or a kinship. So it's like this law, this structure is what creates subjects or creates humans, right? And Althusser would kind of do the same thing. And he would say capitalist ideology creates subjects. And Lacan just does it a little differently by not focusing so much on how things work, but how things fail. And so how does this tie into the imaginary, right? So we look at this mirror stage, this famous essay of like how a baby looks at themselves in the mirror for the first time and they see their image and that becomes their ego, right? So this would be the imaginary development. And this is no different from Freud's theory of sexuality, right? And so we have to understand that the model that psychoanalysis works at is a sort of concept that the baby, unlike an animal, doesn't have instincts. They have drives, but what that means is that the baby is helpless. If you put a baby in the corner right there, it'll keep crying, it'll stay there. So it's dependent upon the mother or an other. And this is where it's learning and exercising language and, and drive functions. And Freud will call this autoerotism, that libido is just all over the place. It's primarily invested all over the body, but it doesn't have a, an object in mind, right? And then you get the birth of narcissism. This is where we get the ego constructed. And Lacan takes this further and says that, well, what narcissism does, it's an imaginary investment into an image of what the body is. And so this kind of goes into your point about talking about the ego and ego ideal. This is where we have what's called primary narcissism in Freud. This is where we have the imaginarized identification of ourselves. And it also helps for us biologically because we have motor skills then. This image kind of helps us with our motor skills. And we have this conception of who we are over time because of the symbolic order. So it's not like that these two things are separate. They're actually in goods with one another. 
we're are if we're already in a society, a symbolic order, well then language is there. So we have an other that's a speaking being, but it's only when we're able to speak back that we have in, been invested in the symbolic order. And not only do we have an ego from this mirror stage, but then we have what's called ego ideal. An ego ideal is myself being able to speak about myself and project who I want to be in the future. So that, and, and it relies on that I operate in a field where there is not only others, but an other that tells me what to do and how to do. Can I give a, an example that I think is correct, but it might be off about what it, the difference between the ego ideal and the ideal ego? I remember I tried to explain this to one of my friends this way, and he like was like, oh, I get it, but it could be off, but I think it's right. In her like daydreams, you can, it's a lot, e it's kind of easy to recognize the ego ideal and ego ideal ego through this example. Like when it's having a little fantasy daydream, which we never want to talk about to anyone else, right? That's the whole thing with fantasies are more obscure than our, than our dreams. But yeah. who you think, how are you portrayed yourself in that fantasy? What are, what is the fantasy? That's like your ego, your ideal ego, like your ideal almost self that you're not quite, it's a exaggerated version of yourself. And then the ego ideal is who's watching you in that fantasy. Is that like that? Cause I remember Todd McGowan gave this example where when like kids play basketball, and when they when and when they shoot and score, and when the kid celebrates, even though there's nobody watching, the person, the people who he kind of imagines as watching is like the ego ideal. Is well, uh, I would say that would be the other, but like that are like big other, but there is a relationship between that moment and then the other, which allows the ego ideal. So it's like how I represent myself for the other. So I would say that yeah, that's a good example. That's definitely a good mm. example to to show. It's not that the other's watching you, but it's like, how do I look for the other? That's the whole point of the ego ideal. And this is for neurotics, by the way. It's like a sort of like, how am I represented for the big other? For and, and the way Lacan appropriates it. Because the concept of ego ideal and ID ideal ego comes from Freud, but in his essay Ego and It, he doesn't really elaborate on too much on the distinction between the two, but it's only because of Khan that he's able to articulate it. And that's because he understands the way law and we're not talking about legal law. He just says like law, like an imperative or an injunction, a commandment. That's an interesting thing in and of itself, because yeah, from the psychoanalytical standpoint, there's no subjectivity outside of law. There's always law. It's just not state law, but that we have there's always law operating. I mean, that's probably worth talking about, like the law of prohibition name of the fuck. Yeah. You want to go into and, that. and this is where Lacan would appropriate the, well, I wouldn't say appropriate, but kind of ground the Oedipus complex and, and law with Levi-Strauss and, as you mentioned, the prohibitions uh, of, of incest. And I think just to kind of dumb it down a bit, that, yes, we don't become subjectivized with, without law. And so we need that. And I think with this, though, this kind of not only is something that's far distinct from psychology, but I think also is the sort of critique against Althusser or like Foucault, that there is a subjectivity, like a remainder that escapes the law. And that's where these clinical structures like hysteria and neurosis are operating, not in law, but the fact that they can't seem to appropriate and subjectivize themselves in a law that says thou shall not and you shall enjoy 
right? And that's the sort of abstract model of how I would say that. But in a sort of Victorian era that Freud was operating in, the sort of being very prude and modest, and then you see this compulsive sexual behavior versus now we have a more free and promiscuous society that says, be who you are and be yourself. And at the same time, people are just so depressed, isolated, and, and can't seem to do that. Even less sex. Yeah. Like, they're, they're sexless, they're kind of like millennials, sexless generation or right, Gen Z. Right. Yeah. And it's the opposite of what the right thinks is happening with sexual liberation. They think that you're having like orgies all the time. Right. Or whatever. It's like in reality, people are kind of not doing that but and they think that if you bring back religion and prohibition but mm -hmm. i mean yeah people were hornier than ever during when there was i mean well i was about to say freud's point but isn't it freud thinks he's critiquing freudo marxists sorry foucault is famous for the history of sexuality and that sexuality was never repressed right really <laughs> effectively because people were were still fucking like people it never really worked and i mean that's supposed to be a critique of freudo marxists but did freud not like factor that in? Well, is... I think what the problem is that people in like Foucault think that when Freud talks about sexuality, he's talking about like practices and intercourse when that's not really what he's talking about at all. Of course, like he's seeing these patients and they have these like obscene fantasies, perverted preferences. Now they're not like perverts in the clinical sense, but like in these sort of transgressions. And yet they're still like have this sense of shame, guilt, and stuff like that. What sexuality is for Freud, and he talks about this in his essays of sexuality, that our libido, if we could have an analogy or a metaphor for it, it's that to hunger. But yet, not only that, we when we're hungry, we eat, and then that's it. And then when we eat, we, it's because we're hungry again. Of course, that's always the case. We sometimes like to binge eat. But just for all intents and purposes, like for libido, it's not only do we desire an object of satisfaction, but we actually deviate from that. And that I think goes back to what we're talking about, like how drive keeps the object at bay. And yet this repetition to re repeat that compulsive repetition, just to keep that loop of missing that object. This is what Freud was discovering before he even thought of the death drive because these essays came out in 1914 and beyond the pleasure principle came out in 1920. And so right then and there it's repression and this deviation of object. It's not that, Oh, repression, what's repressed is just your sexual desire. And you just need to act as yourself. It's no, it's actually repression that allows you to have sexuality to begin with. Right. And so to go back to our example of the sexless millennials, it's because they're told to enjoy that they don't have sex, right? But if they were told don't enjoy, it's this, this like opposite. But it's more, as far as the, the clinical theory goes, it's more complex than that. But I think to kind That's of... That's a perfect clip, by the way. What is it? Like what you just explained there about why it obviously doesn't explain to everything. <laughs> But yeah. I mean, why that paradox of why more sexual liberation doesn't lead to more sex, sometimes the opposite. Right. And that, that in itself, like in, by demystifying that misconception of the psychoanalysis, which is pretty much probably best summed up by Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich's whole thing is kind of, if there's, I don't 
Wilhelm Reich definitely does seem to think if you just like liberate sex more, right. you'll have a freer culture, you'll have whatever. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole yeah, other thing. Yeah, I think it's too into. like optimistic on that. But yeah, I think like in terms of that sexuality and the repression hypothesis, like, well, like repression is, like I said, it, it what it's what allows sexuality to be possible. But really, what is also being repressed is like this sort of traumatic encounter and what what this means and this is where we, we got into this conversation because we we're talking about the three registers the real and this is like the most widely misunderstood one it's the most obscure it seems very esoteric and it's kind of i i still think it's really hard to sum up in in, in short terms but we already went in that the imaginary is this the the, the image it's the ego it's it's narcissism it's it's how we invest into our bodies and we could invest into the other, the ego ideal, and that couldn't happen without language. So we have the investment of both. But the real is like that sort of remainder that's left out because of the law that kind of comes back, right? And there's this guy on YouTube for the audience, if they're interested, his name's Brian Becker. He has this channel called Singularity as Sublimity. And he goes over phenomenology and psychoanalysis. He's kind of doing what we're doing in Vanishing Meteors, going over the seminars, and he's got really good production. But he did a really good psychoanalytic uh, uh, film thing. It was it was an analysis of the Disney movie Encanto. I don't know if you've seen it. It's really good, but it's about a family. I think they're like in Colombia or Argentina, but they have a house that's filled with magic. And they're only allowed to have it because the father is killed um, fortunately when they're trying to, him and the family are trying to escape from wherever and the death brings about a miracle of a household of magic for the, the wife and the three kids. And then there's like a lineage of family that they all have magic and they do this ceremony to where the kid is old enough. They open this magical door in the house and it shows what powers they'll have. Well, the, they're like all daughters and then the daughters have kids and stuff like that with whatever like lover that they meet but there's the one son that's always repressed or never talked about and they have a song like disney always likes to, to go into songs uh let's not talk about bruno right and so you don't know who bruno is you just hear the song let's not talk about bruno and bruno is the son that resembles the father and yet he also is traumatic because he's the only male and that his power is that he reveals terrible news that's his only magical power. The house is supposed to be magical power. Everybody has this magical power to talk to animals, to do cool things and make celebration possible. But his only thing is to reveal terrible news to come. And so he's repressed. And so he lives within the walls of the house. But I think that encapsulates the real because the real comes in an adverted form in which it's not like some transcendental thing rather something that lives within the language that we occupy ourselves with, how we speak about ourselves. And when it's reverted back to us by the analyst, it becomes real. Wait, that's not how I perceive my life. That's not how I viewed myself when I talked with like all my exes. They're the problem, not me. And then when you, so when you get this language reverted back or sent back to you in an inverted form, it's hard to symbolically register and so it's always rejected or repressed and it always keeps coming back. This is what Freud would call the return of the repressed. And so 
the real is just the traumatic thing that always comes out, not only in the speech act of analysis, but even in dreams and nightmares. And Todd McGowan has some funny things. He has this cool thing to say in his white theory. It's if we read beyond the pleasure principle with interpretation of dreams, the death drive would also make sense because that's the one thing that's hardly really talked about are like nightmares and how nightmares repeat. I think the concept of repression in general is useful when arguing against certain other forms of popular psychology, because there's this popular idea that repression is you repress things deep down in your unconscious deep down. When for Lacanians, for psychoanalysis, this is just right there. It's right in front of you. I mean, it's that's why the whole thing of the slips, right, is because people are slipping out their unconscious all the time. Mm -hmm. It's transparent and like the split subject rather than it being in back here somewhere. It's more like split like this way in the sense that not literally, but in the sense that it's your unconscious is kind of always making its way through language is transparent, just not to yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I would say like a good example is Freud has this essay called Negation or in German Berninen, but like the example is like the the person that he talks about is like saying, I had a dream about a woman, but I guarantee you before you say anything, it wasn't my mother. So there is an example of how mm -hmm. the operation of repression affirms itself in a negative and inverted form. It's not that, oh, so you were talking about your mother. No, it's neither mother or not mother. It's the not mother. So something that just happened to take the place of denying the mother. And so through the process of the free association, we see, well, the need to, to say that when Freud wasn't even thinking about that. I had a dream about this woman, but let me tell you, it wasn't my mother. Or we kind of see this uh, in everyday language. Listen, not to be racist or anything, or listen, I don't mean to be rude. So this is the way that we could see a mundane example of everyday repression kind of operating or everyday unconscious speech manifest itself. Yeah, there's a J. Cole lyric that I think explains this Lacanian idea. And it's, <laughs> all, all good jokes contain true shit. And well, yeah. yeah, and that's the, the thing a lot of people say, oh, it's just a joke. Don't overthink it. Don't be, and it's in reality, just the arrangement of, lang of the words being used in a sentence can convey a lot. And sometimes what one is not intentionally trying to say says more about what yeah. they're really saying, right? And so, what in in your article, just to go back on that, just to go back a little bit on the whole critique of therapism, because like the, the the way this ties into what is lacking in a lot of popular therapy, and when in what ways does like the way people, for example, like cognitive behavioral therapy, not factor in this the way psychoanalysis sees the unconscious. And after that, right. I do want to get into the, after that, I want to get a little bit into Jung because you have a very wow. interesting, well, you don't talk about actually a lot in that essay, but you yeah. do reference it. Peterson is yeah. like the, as the popular Jungian today and yeah. kind of and how I do, psychoanalysis is different from Jung. Yeah. And I do actually have an article that's called Freud versus Jung, the theory of libido and the way in which not only we, sh we see that Freud is right, but also from Lacan's standpoint, how he saves Freud from the Jungianism that's kind of popular and still popular today. Um, but yeah, so in, in that question, I feel like the problem of pop psychology or just mainstream psychology or even behavioral sciences, it's just that, well, 
they don't use the unconscious because everything is predicated on this triangle of thoughts, emotions, and its relation with behavior, right? And this is what's commonly used, this triangle in CBT. And so there's no room for the unconscious because they're not looking at language the way both Freud and Lacan would. Rather, it's focusing on behavior patterns, the way that you think it's really distorted and it's causing you to feel this way or think like this or act like that. So it's like this very Pavlovian, watered down Pavlovianism, in, in, in my opinion. And so why talk about the unconscious when the model that you work with doesn't even give room for that? But I don't know if that answers your question or not, as far as like the more of psychology and the unconscious. Kind of. Yeah. And then I guess it's a, it's a good time to transition into, I guess, Peterson, right? Because yeah. Jordan Peterson's a Jungian. And the thing about Jung, right, is he's also dismissed, but not on the grounds that I would like him to be dismissed on. He's dismissed on the fact that he's not scientific. And if we use that not scientific term, you dismiss a lot of, you just, you end up dismissing continental philosophy first. Right. And you end up dismissing much of, you, you dismiss psychoanalysis, of course, right? Yeah, And I always thought the problem with Jung was a lot deeper. I don't want to say there's nothing he has to offer and not even that as well-versed as I'd like to be to really land a critique, but it did. Correct me who said this exactly, if it, not Lacan himself. Was it that Jung's psychology uh, takes the symbolic elements to be part of the real and thus that's a, precisely like the condition of the psychotic subject or or something like that? It might be a no, Lacan I, quote, but I've it was... never heard Lacan say that, but I hear Adrian Johnston say something that, and this is from Mikey, Michael Downs, the dangerous, maybe that Lacan or like Jung kind of psychoticizes the universe because he kind of, he becomes not only less scientific, but he falls into a philosophical error of vitalism and animism with his notion of the unconscious, because his notion of the unconscious is not the Freudian unconscious that operates via repression with language and what's called displacement or condensation, where condensation, a bunch of ideas or representations are molded into one association in a dream or displacement where one thing is switched for another. He operates in this like romanticist creative will, the Spinozis Konatus or the he, he, Aaron, I think it's Edward von Hartmann is one of the other romanticists that he quotes. And so in that sense, he opts out for his vitalist striving towards a unification. And he also doesn't think that the unconscious or libido has anything to do with sexuality, but rather for a psychic investment towards individuation. So there's the radical distinction between Freud and Lacan versus Jung. But I would say also that in appearance, it seems that Jung is very anti-scientific because of his whole, it was always popular, like myth, anima animus, the self, all these sort of the shadow, all the, all these things that he's kind of known for, but in his works, he's actually always quoting science and he's always piggybacking off of psychoanalysis of Freud and Adler versus what he calls as analytic psychology and psychiatry. And he's going through all these studies and then he'll talk about like how this could be similar to stuff in philosophy. So I think He's actually scientifically very rigorous, but 
I think he focuses so hard on trying to make the stuff that he learned from Freud into an empirical model, and that's where it fails. Like he opt out for free association for the associate word association test. And so trying to scientifically categorize all these Jung, uh, Freudian discoveries, that was a Freudian slip, all these Freudian discoveries into a categorical and an analytical way obscures him from the project of Freud and what Lacan would later resuscitate. But I, I don't really go in that much with that with Peterson. I, my gripe with Peterson is what I find funny is like how he'll talk about Jung and identify with Jung in his own and this mode of, of transformation. But then rather than stick to the Jungian model, he's drawing on from these random zoology things or trying to compare us to lobsters or just like his use of trying to cherry pick examples and the Myers-Briggs. And I think like some Freudians or Jungians actually like to use the Myers-Briggs, but... Via Jungian. I think so. I'm not sure. And the funny thing is I used to be under uh, a Jungian analyst before I, I switched to a Lacanian. And it's just funny because he, I mentioned something about Jordan Peterson and he's, I don't like he was saying like the way he is, the way he's so aggressive and the way that he tries to cherry pick science and stuff like that. Like it's has nothing to do with Jung at all. And you know, I thought that was interesting to hear from him. I don't think many Jungians actually really identify with Jordan Peterson, from my understanding. I've, yeah, I've heard to there's a lot of critique that he's not even good as far as understanding Jungian theory, which is really, that says a lot just because there's the stages of hating Peterson, which is, oh, I like his psychology, but I don't like his politics. And then there's, yeah. oh, I don't really like his psychology or his politics. Then, but I like Jung, his Jungian stuff. Oh, he's not even good. Yeah. Jungian, what is he even good at? He's good yeah, at, yeah. you know. It's like a first disavowal, but right. yeah. So since we're bringing up Peterson, I just like to clarify because of my essay, it's Gabor Mate, it's Phil Studs, yeah. and it's Peterson that I see as like the giants and faces of what is called therapism. And I'm mm. not saying that everybody adheres to all three of them or one of them, but that what they are is the sort of voice for what's already dominant. It's just they're like the, the poster children for that. Like, and they're um, all and they're all different, right? You kind of you they're all different. That. Yeah, they are different in their approaches. And I'd like to hear you get into Gabramate just because I th thought that was interesting. I, I do have a soft spot for Gabramate. I read yeah, his same. book on AD, ADHD back in the day, and uh, he's a very nice guy. He is like anti-capitalist marginally. He's like on the left. He's as far as I'd rather have him be like a poster boy for like popular psychology than Peterson, certainly. However, well, though, it, I guess it would be, it, I think a lot of listeners today would be, it would be a first time for them to hear like a left critique of, of, um, Gabor Mate and yeah. his, the type of, the psychological episteme he uses. Um, right. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you tell us more about that a bit? Because uh, yeah, I thought and, that was very interesting. So trauma, because that ties into trauma, right? Yeah. And so with my, my, it's my polemic against these three, I see that as this person that just acts neutral and doesn't care about anything. Just all right. these visualizations, these tools are going to help you succeed. They're going to help you with your own problems. And it's always focused on just the person that is lacking guidance and lacking fulfillment and just doesn't feel themselves, right? It has no sort of 
room for the psychotic or the neurotic, right? Or like any of these, like maybe you like, let's just, let's just humor the DSM-5. Like how does this work for somebody who's bi like bipolar or borderline? That's like my hot take. And so I see like Stutz as like someone who's just like the, again, it, it's all, as you said, like self-coaching, life coaching and self-help. Like that's what the, the therapeutic remedy of modern day therapism boils down to with all its studies, criterions, and gospel of the DSM-5. It just boils down to like how to self-articulate yourself and, and be authentic. And with Peterson, it's, as we know, it's just like he gives you 12 rules and says that you need to worry about fixing yourself before you can fix the world. And we'll even say that, oh, you think you're a good person? And he gives this grandiose example that I just think is just, it's just idiotic. And, and I critique it by in the in his paragraph, or the paragraph that I've dedicated from, where he will use the Jungian shadow and say, visualize yourself in an Auschwitz camp and that you're a prison guard. And that think of the most horrific thing that you would do to the Auschwitz victims there. And once you get to the darkest and worst thing that you could ever imagine, that's your shadow. It's, it's just so bizarre. And so I just kind of like point that out and just like to see you don't need that to help yourself or remedy yourself or to figure out what's wrong with you. But with Gabor Mate, it is interesting because he's the one that I think is really in dialogue with the up-to-date research. He's always quoting papers from a, a university study on whether it's addiction, it's trauma, it's childhood development. And so I really give him his props on that. But even as a leftist intellectual, as he, he talks about, he always boils down to, well, and it's the same thing. What we need to do is be authentic and, and find our own creativity and, and, and nurture ourselves and be the people that we are meant to be because he falls from this presupposition that the child is whole and authentic and a creative self that leaves that, that needs nurturing and love. And it's through cruel and indifferent parents that causes trauma because the babies and, and children, they need warmth and comfort and the ability to express themselves. And when they don't have that, they opt out for a substitute that becomes addiction to resuscitate that trauma. And his definition of trauma is it is not what happens to you, but how you internalize it. Right. And that seems fine. That seems like counterintuitive or it seems intuitive, right? That seems like everyone would be like, wow, yeah, I feel that. And especially with his it's work. It's also on what psychoanalysis says, no, but in a different way. Not really at all, because if you look at the theory of trauma for psychoanalysis, it has really nothing to do with internalization at all. What trauma is, is rather and this is where we have to kind of sit back. And I, I think I mentioned it in the essay, but the development of theory of trauma in Freud, that Freud thought that it was from a past event in early childhood. He'll call it the theory of seduction, which he abandons because he thinks that sexuality, because of his patience, is instantiated upon the other as adult through a traumatic sexual encounter because a lot of his patients were opening up about rape and molestation and the person that he was in dialogue with in his letters was just like no i don't think that was really a good discovery i think it was a fleece or something like that that's the guy his name i don't know his first name but freud was then realized that trauma is not that it's not either seduction or just from 
a past experience that is repressed. Rather, and, and it goes back to his, and I mentioned it in there, um, his case study on a Wolfman or a, a, a Russian guy whose uh, pseudonym is called the Wolfman because he has a dream where he uh, is at his bedroom and he opens the window and he sees like a, a group of wolves right there. And it's like very like a nightmare for him. But Wolfman has a, a moment of hallucinations and, and a one specific hallucination alongside that dream is where he hallucinates that his finger is like cut and, and hanging. Then it brings out a lot of the unconscious. And so by associating it, he retroactively accounts for a moment in which he re recalls where he walked in on his parents having sex doggy style. So how was that traumatic? Well, the, the trauma is not that, right? Trauma is not that. It's the fact that the way trauma works in psychoanalysis is, and, and this is where we get into the counterintuitive anti-empirical thing, that by chance, our subjectivity itself is traumatically structured rather than us internalizing an event or internalizing this feeling that makes us feel anxious. Rather, it's the way that our drive and desire is structured. And by recounting our entire history and our past that we encounter upon a mythic moment that brings about the truth of our subjectivity. And so this is not only where it's, this is of course a bit complicated and just all over the place, but it's not empirical. It's not intuitive. And also it also, it seems very philosophical at the same point that with Freud, this is where he calls retroactivity that everything that we recount is retroactively constructed. So the yeah. definition of psychoanalysis that point. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's like a punctual moment. And so we can think of the real as a traumatic in encounter that comes with these inverted messages coming back to us, but there's a punctual moment to it. And so as we account for the history of ourselves, it's not an immediate history of our past. Rather, it's a constant retelling of ourselves. And every time we retell a story, we find different ways to describe it that bring up different what's called truth effects rather than a truth about ourselves. It's like the moment that we speak about something that brings about a truth effect. And with Lacan, he gets so obsessed with what he calls recreational mathematics. It's just when you combine certain numbers and they create an effect, he has this game called odds and evens where he like does the coin toss. If you've seen squid games, that yeah. game where they're like, yeah, this you stuff's know. complicated. Yeah. And I just want to sum it up. I just want to sum it up by saying like, why he's focused on, on recreational mathematics, because when you combine certain things together, you get a certain truth that doesn't exist a priori, two plus two equals four, or as Kant would say, me being an unmarried man causes me to be a bachelor, right? It's within the definition. Rather, when I start to speak about something and combine these different signifiers that the analyst points out, oh, you say this a lot, or what does this mean? And so like when I combine them together, I realize something about myself. That is the truth effect. And to be able to receive it all is to encounter the trauma. It has nothing to do with the past. Of course, but it doesn't discredit the fact that things like war, PTSD, or like abuse, a car crash, the death of a loved one, 
isn't important. That is, a, those are severe punctual moments, but the way that we recount them aren't always the traumatic thing that we think. And so the more that we retroactively, meaning going back, constantly going back to ourselves and recounting the truth of our lives from now to my younger years, my adolescent years, my childhood, that we begin to think of new, discover new things about the unconscious. And that's the sort of traumatic thing that, that, that comes about that's punctual and it has nothing to do with this internalized. Well, that, that's what I meant by internalized. It's like the way we kind of imagine this trauma and try to retroactively uh, make sense of it, giving all these back events like that kind of, in a sense, makes the trauma. It can change the way we experience it just based on the way we give so much rationale to it and identify with it is like, yeah, you maybe Yeah. I, I would. Think, yeah. In the, in the sense. Yeah. And so like, even with the, like the, the, the not mother thing that I mentioned earlier, it's that's an example of the way, okay, something that is traumatic comes up in an inverted form and takes the form of that's not my mother. The traumatic thing has nothing to do with mom. It's just the fact that it could be spoken about in a sort of inverted and concealed mediated form. But I would say as far as like when we, with my essay, when I talk about trauma, this is where I get really psychoanalytic and I distinguish the Gabor Mate thing from or his notion of trauma with, with the psychoanalytic notion. And that I give him the props of, yeah, he's compared to Peterson and Stutz. He's out there quoting scientific literature. He's, he's very credible, but I think like when I add the Marxist standpoint, not just the, the psychoanalytic standpoint as a critique of not only his notion of trauma, but introducing the real, that at the end of the day, he, for him being a leftist intellectual and, and talking about capitalism, he reifies it by saying that we just need to accentuate ourselves and, and be authentic and that it's toxic culture that creates toxic individuals and hurt people rather than looking at it from a more systemic thing, which I find a little bizarre, especially when he considered himself in the past as some sort of Marxist. But let's again, with that part of the essay, I would have to be honest, it's more of like a polemic than it is really a rigorous dismantling of, yeah. of Gabor Mate and what does it mean to be scientific? Uh, Gabor Mate is a friend of the show still. Yeah. Think. <laughs> Gabor Mate can come on whatever, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I do like him. And I, I do find him, as you said, I agree. I find him a little, very, a nice approach. He's really kind. He's very soft-spoken and he, he does have some good stuff to say, but like it does still fall in because it's very, it's the seductive and subtle way of just kind of reifying capital and the commodification of the self by putting everything on mystified language, like toxic people and different people addiction we're all addicted because or not we're all addicted but addiction could be anything it has nothing to do with substance you could be an addicted gambler an addicted shopper and all this but it's well can't you just say everything is and this is an addiction then but then it's well then what kind of society do we live in and so it's like when you look at from the marxist perspective of exchange right we're already in a system of commodity exchange <laughs> and that repetitions that comes before a sort of addiction or I think that's exemplary of what we can even call addiction. I don't know if that makes sense. I have a couple of questions that I think would be interesting to answer in like psychoanalytical uh, perspective. One is, so how do, how would like a Lacanian understand the phenomena 
that's increasing today of, of identification with the symptom. Where, for example, people kind of, I've noticed this a lot just in everyday life. A lot of people who will say they go to therapy and they'll say it's a big step. They'll boast, they'll talk about it a lot openly. They'll identify with being a person who has depression or bipolar disorder, but often depression is the most common one today I've seen, is mm-hmm. saying, oh, as a depressed person. And I think like there is a an instinctive kind of response to that, which is, oh, don't acknowledge it's real. It just if it's real, if it, whatever, depression isn't real. It's only real if you say it is, whatever. But I think there's something deeper going on, like a deeper critique of that isn't just like this dismissal that it doesn't exist, but a sort of identification with the symptom, like I see as a thing. You could say it's a thing with ADD as well, but yeah. I don't know. What is a sort of Lacanian view of that? That sort of, I identify with this or identify traumas is another thing. Trauma bonding between people. You see that a lot. The saying, yeah. oh, this is part of me. These traumas shape me. They try to make sense of it like it's a villain arc or something. Right. Or yeah. Whatever. And I just, what my like funny way of describing it is just like, mm. it just becomes a new form of astrology, like the way that they identify their personality based upon their symptom or whatever DSM-5 category it is. And yeah, it seems to be a, like, it's like a, a huge phenomenon now. And especially it doesn't help with every other TikTok reel, like somebody like says they're a therapist or they know how to talk about a certain diagnosis because let me speak from the perspective from someone who has this clinical diagnosis. But it's not that something like depression isn't real. And we even say I'm depressed, right? Sometimes we'll say I feel depressed. I think what this is though, is like not even just to identify, but to experience it is an imaginarized form of something deeper than something that is on the level of the unconscious, but in order to avoid it, it, it resi- the ego resisted by manifesting a surface level symptom of, of depression or anxiety in the DSM-5 sense, anxiety attacks, panicking, all of those. I'm not denying those phenomenon, and I don't think a Lacanian would deny that those phenomenons are happening, but that isn't what is at stake when it comes to the level of the unconscious, because we see the way that the symptom manifest on the level of the unconscious and also is taking the place of this feeling of onset depression or chronic anxiety. And even Darian Leader, he's a famous Lacanian and Freudian in the UK. He he wrote like a book on what is madness, but he had this essay on bipolar saying that, well, like bipolar is the sort of last resort of a defense on the level of the ego to avoid something that's happening on the level of the unconscious. And that is what in, in Freudian and Lacanian, Lacanian terms is called foreclosure. And that means where the unconscious pretty much vanishes and you have psychosis. So bipolar is like a sort of defense for onset psychosis for some people. And so, but like to get into your question of this identification, it's it's the, this way in which well, if I identify with this, it's okay. I could take it as myself. And like, this is like who I am, but no, you're like, we're not who we are. That's the, that's the Lacanian realization is that we don't know who we are. We only know who we are amongst the other, right? And even when we talk about ourselves in analysis, we realize we really don't know who we are because it's always being put into question each session. And, and you, the more you go into analysis, the more when you like look at the, the time, you're like, damn, I have analysis of an hour and I don't want to go. Because you don't want to know about yourself because what you think you are is not who you are. So you may identify with whatever, 
your symptom, like this, the symptom that you saw on TikTok and then you're just like, oh, that's me or like whatever your psych assess or traditional therapist said, but totally wrong. And not because you don't have that symptom, because that's not who you are. And is there also an element of enjoyment in the symptom as well, like enjoying your symptom? Because I've noticed this just a lot, whereas some people who have depression will kind of like very much identify with the aesthetic of depression, like posts about it. They'll kind of make it their personality to be, they'll make it part of their whole personality and they'll kind of just reference it about themselves. They'll, and they'll also associate with people who identify similarly. And you could say there's an element of tr bonding on relatability, but it right. also could be like reaffirming each other's enjoyment. Because when we say yeah. enjoyment, it seems absurd to say like, how could you enjoy being depressed? But enjoyment literally in the sense of you're kind of sabotaging your own desire, fulfillment of desire all the time. Yeah. yeah, and it's not like somebody gets extreme pleasure from it, but rather it's it, it, the only term I could think of is like what Frederick Jameson calls cognitive mapping, the way that we like outline not only who we think we are, but the, like our worldview. And so like when you get rid of that, if like your worldview and who you think you are in the world is invested on identifying with the symptom, it's not that you just get pleasure from it and that's enjoyable. The fact that if that's taken away from you, your entire world is taken away from you. So it's, that's why the sort of doomer who's just like, oh, I'm just so depressed, all is meaningless. But if they have the opportunity to like, oh, you go to therapy or something like that, it's kind of funny we're cr criticizing therapism, but that, let's say that was an offer. They didn't want to do it though, because it's just like, why? It's not because they enjoy their symptom of, I get pleasure from it, but like the symptom is um, predicated on just their cognitive mapping of how they see themselves and, and their entire overview. So to lose that is like to lose the enjoyment that they have and for any type of identification with the symptom. I mean, and it went back to what I said in the beginning that if psychoanalysis does anything and promises anything, it's that it gives you the opportunity to not enjoy for the first time. I guess that is something to clarify that in our critique, of therapism this it's not to say oh it's all a spook and that you should just pretend these problems don't exist it's all capitalism whatever that can be its own excuse right that oh it's all capitalism i'm not going to confront anything whereas like the psycho and i mean there's also a lot of smart people who have opposed the very concept of therapy in general right like the deluso guitarians Foucauldians tend to kind of oppose it they kind of see it as any attempt to integrate the subject and they see a sort of romantic potential i guess in the power of the un uh, like schizophrenic subject but i mean that term like more generally like they're kind of not integrated in the symbolic order and into the social structure and they kind of have this like outsideness but this can be radical so they see therapy as trying to sabotage the outsiders from sabotaging the system but we have a very different position. It's no, actually, people, you do need to take care of individual problems as well as social problems, right? I will preface with, by saying this. I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of people who are schooled in psychoanalysis tend to, I just noticed, tend to be very skeptical of a lot of anti-state politics, like a fully anti-state politics. What I mean by that is the kind of idea that you can do away with authority structures, just and that's an inherent good. Authority is an inherent bad. because. If you deconstruct everything, if you deconstruct all the world structures, all the ideologies, all, all the authorities, and you don't have anything to replace that with, do you not just get a kind of psychosis? 
Right. And so this is where I, I like that you brought this up because I was thinking about DNG today, Deleuze and Guattari with their anti-Oedipus thing. They think that, well, that, well, capitalism moves like the body without organs, but like the body without organs and the schizophrenic is like the, the limit of capitalism and that capitalism and this despotic signifier is uh, Oedipus, this neurotic law that like everything makes us neurotic and we need to get rid of all social structures and hierarchies. But the Lacanian twist is that Oedipus itself is already anti-Oedipus. The neurotic is not, it gets enjoyment because they can't find enjoyment and they are failed interpolated subjects. I talk about failed interpolation in my book or in the book, in the essay in the book uh, that falling off of Althusser, Althusser thinks that capitalist ideology interpolates us as subjects, but psychoanalysis from Zizek and Mladen Dolar, another Slovenian colleague of his, says that psychoanalysis deals with the remainder, the, uh, the failed interpolated subject that is on the level of neurosis, yeah, obsessional and hysteria. And even something like psychosis and perversion are the product of that too, but the psychotic just lives in their own world and the pervert wants to instantiate the law. They need the law. And I think that's something that the the critiques of it from Foucault against the repressive hypothesis or against Oedipus by DNG, they don't understand the nuances of what psychoanalysis and what Lacan is saying is that no, like it's not that we need a law or an authority, but in a sense, like there is a, a, a necessary, in a sense, a structure for us to thrive in. Otherwise there would be one no civilization and no sexuality to begin with. There, that that's the sort of paradox is that, like I said, there wouldn't be no sexuality without repression. And also, it isn't advocating that on a social political scale that psychoanalysis are just authoritarians, but they realize that there would be an impossibility of any sort of civilization to happen without some sort of sacrifice or as Freud says in like civilization and discontent, like the giving up of sexual enjoyment or something for the chance of society or civilization. And it's the same thing. It's like we're admitted into the structure by giving up an enjoyment, but enjoyment that we never had to begin with, right? It's only when we experience lack as a subject that we think that we had this enjoyment prior, but somebody's holding it from us or something out there is holding it from me. Right. And that lack kind of starts with the mirror stage when the subject realizes that he cannot fully fulfill the mother's desire. No. Right. So you have three forms of lack and it's talked about in seminar for from Lacan. So that example would be frustration because the imaginary itself is very frustrating because it's just a fleeting image. And it's something that for psychotics causes their paranoid delusions and stuff like that, because all they have is this imaginary register to kind of thrive off of. So they create like their own sort of universe through these weird delusions and like ways they describe themselves to be able to sustain their reality. Cause like reality is kind of, 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 of investing in the world of objects or signifiers is gone for this mythic moment that you talked about. The, the the child is put into this choice of accepting what would be called castration or just a simplified term alienation via language and the law that gives them the ability to not only 
get rid of that frustration, but also to be able to accept lack. So there's the first lack frustration, realizing that the mother has a desire that the, the kid can't uh, sustain, and then castration, alienating yourself and accepting the law. And then there's privation, which is another example of the real in which the symbolic substitute, which would feel your lack that also brings lack is lacking. So not only do you realize that there's a lack in yourself, but also a lack in the law or then the symbolic order. That's the privation. So those are the three forms of lack. So I guess we're approaching our time a bit. And I do want to end on a point just because, of course, by nature, there'll be a lot of confusion. These are very difficult concepts to get. And I mean, I can link as many resources as I can. Of course, you should definitely check out the big SIG. You should definitely check out Andrew's work and the stuff, the YouTube links I'm going to have, as well as there's this stuff, a lot of stuff on YouTube. There's this great stuff from one of the people you mentioned, Derek Hook. And I really think my favorite really was Todd McGowan. Todd McGowan on YouTube has all these great lectures that explain so much stuff in detail. Um, there's a plastic pills as YouTube videos are decent, decently good introductory for the three registers. Well, besides and, uh, the vanishing years is the stuff that I, I, I do where we really extensively go over the, the seminars, literally line item by line. So if you are really interested in getting into Lacan, I recommend going into the seminars. Don't pick up the accrete because you will get discouraged and you'll just, you just won't want to read it again. And everything that you need to learn, learn about Lacan is in the seminars. But I highly recommend Singularity as Sublimity, which is Brian Becker. He really gives a good summary of each seminar. And his videos are enjoyable to watch. His production is really good. And he does it all on his own. And he's, he's a psych professor who just also happened to really be invested in phenomenology. And it was from phenomenology that he encountered Lacan. So I highly recommend his stuff because he's doing a lot of good work. He's right now on seminar five. So definitely. Yeah. So I do just want to end on something, which is, well, per perhaps two things. But one is, we talked about the death drive and how people undermine themselves. And the problem with a lot of therapies that it just tries to kind of bolster up the ego and it tries to make you feel a bit better and give like a lot of temporary feel-good type fixes. And whereas analysis is trying to really unpack the symptom, what yeah. actually is going on. Now, <clears throat> still probably isn't very clear for a lot of people listening. I mean, what exactly does psychoanalysis prescribe? What is psychoanalysis? Like someone might ask, why should I see a psychoanalyst? What, how can psychoanalysis help me? I guess that's important to maybe yeah. clarify what is the yeah. objective, right? Because then you get, it can be dismissed on terms that it doesn't op abide by, which is it's not effective because it doesn't make you feel better immediately or whatever. Mm, so, right, right. Yeah. And I, I think to, to answer that, it's the, like Lacan gives a, a definition of it in seminar when it's the, the psychoanalysis is the reconstitution and the resuscitation of the truth of the subject, the subject's <clears throat> construction of their history, of their past, but the past doesn't equal history and history doesn't equal the past, but rather the way that is constructed in the present moment. And that's through analysis. So it's constructing your past constantly or constructing your history to learn about the truth of it, the truth effect that comes about. And so in the sense, we see how psychoanalysis can benefit not just on an individual level, but just 
also as that alternative form that rejected discourse amongst these dominant discourses that adhere to capital. And especially for somebody that is on the same wavelength as us that really see the errors in psychology in modern therapy, but want that alternative, I really think psychoanalysis could help. And even just to learn about what your desire is. And it's also funny too, because you could, you get people that are like just so dismissive of this and really are into psychology or any type of like science. But if you listen to how like people talk about their dreams, it's as if it's some type of divinatory prophetic thing. Like they may have had some like nightmare dream of a friend having a car crash and dying. And like, they call them like, I had a dream about you. Like, are you okay? And so the sort of disavow and like the, the way that like, even though if they don't believe that dreams have any meaning that they kind of, it's still believed for them. So you really kind of get this demystification of how dreams work and really that dreams have everything to do with the manifestations of your symptom formation and the formations of the unconscious. And in terms of what the death drive deals with, or while psychoanalysis deals with the death drive or sees the death drive, it's not like this negative thing. In fact, it's because of the drive that learning about your symptom is even possible. Truth happens through error. In seminar two, Lacan has this funny joke about the death drive and how we learn from error. And so he says, an idiot boy walks into a, a funeral after having seen the family in so long. So he walks in and he says, many happy returns. And so the family looks at him and they start pulling his hair and yelling at him and beating him up saying, you don't say that. You say, may God rest his soul. And so two weeks later, he goes to a wedding. And right as the groom was about to say his vows, he says, may God rest his soul. And then he gets beat up. And so that's how we see the death drive operating by learning from error. We always learn later and then we learn to integrate it. But it's like, how do you integrate it in the right moment? Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot there. I wanted to almost go deeper into that, but we probably won't have time. That's a whole rabbit hole. Perhaps since this was largely related to subjects in that piece you published in Underground Theory Volume 1, do you have anything you want to say about therapy as ideology, just to tie this whole thing together, to quilt it, perhaps? Yeah, because the, the main thesis That's the is ending that, part. Yeah. yeah, the main thesis of the therapy is that, as I said earlier, like it commodifies like itself, but really what the therapy is just a super ego injunction to enjoy, but to say, be yourself, because we all realize that the world we live in is, is terrible. Like capitalism, people are starting to learn more about capitalism, but they don't know, they don't understand how it's the same, it sustains itself. So you said the super era. ego injunction to enjoy. That makes sense yeah. to me, but that's not going to make any sense to the way yeah. like, people so, are used to thinking of super ego. Right. Yeah. And this is, yeah, I'll get into that because I'm yeah. building up on it. Like what the frame of the essay is, is not just from the psychoanalytic analytic standpoint, but from the Marxist ideology critique and the way that capitalist sustains itself is through ideology, but it isn't an ideology of, oh, be a capitalist subject, buy commodities or stuff like that, rather because it's a system that can't be a functioning totality. It, it breaks down, it fails. And even when it fails, as subjects we fail, our way that we continue to invest in it is invested through the superego. And so for, the, for a Lacanian, 
which differs from Freud, right? This, the, for Freud, we, we think, or he thinks that the superego is this like, in a sense, a categorical imperative, like this moral law that operates on us that says thou shall not do this. And it's very cruel and juridical, but for Lacan, he sees it, it's, it's cruel, not because it tells us not to do, but it's, we're not doing enough. It's that voice that says, do it better, get it right, enjoy it, be the best version of yourself. And it's this cruel thing because it wants us to do the most and be the most, but it, it has a sort of impossible law with uh, an unachievable goal. And so the way that I see therapy operate as a sort of way to reify capital and to be capitalist subjects is to forget about all that in the world, forget about these political parties, forget about your parents be yourself enjoy yourself treat yourself be the best version of yourself so all of these sort of catchphrases become super egoic because they command it's a voice and imperative that commands you to be something to do something and that not only you have to do it, but you have to feel it and if you're not feeling it if you don't feel happy then something is wrong with you right it's not the therapy. It's just something wrong with you. And it's just not where you're not working hard enough. So in a sense, that's for me, how I see super ego tie in with therapy. I think that's a solid answer. And uh, yeah, no, I think that's great. That's a great way to quilt it all together in a messy way. Yeah. This is one of our, the longer one time radio podcasts, typically than usual. We'll be doing streams soon on the main channel one time then re-uploading them later as pods that'll be a bit longer but by nature this one had to be a bit longer than the most one-time radio episodes we've done because it's a deeply complicated subject i mean we could have just sat here and done a critique of therapism from just like because it distracts us from social issues that's that would take far less long but from to actually like critique the clinical practices of a lot of therapy used today um that requires a lot of time and it requires unpacking some, at least some of Lacan and uh, psychoanalysis, the key concepts of psychoanalysis, which are just very hard to unpack it. But I think we, we got through a lot today. And I think anyone who's still listening uh, will definitely get a lot of value from it, uh, regardless if they're completely new or if they're, they've heard a bit and you know, this is a way to kind of get some more familiarity with it. But yeah, if you find this as fascinating as I do, I recommend checking out the stuff. Uh, we said to check out and if you enjoyed the episode please give the podcast a five-star rating that really helps people discover all these new ideas that i think are helpful not just for political change but for practical everyday reality and that's one thing i think probably more than any other school of thought that i've become immersed in the psychoanalysis has so much practical everyday value for self-awareness for awareness of others for just watching movies I can see why Zizek's such a film nerd, always making these analogies all the time. It just is hard not to when you get a little Lacanian psychoanalysis in you. So, right. yeah, it's been great, man. Pleasure to have you on. We'd love to. I'm Thank sure you. I'll have you again a couple other times for sure, for a stream yeah. perhaps. Yeah, and, and and this is the, I'd say probably like the first time <laughs> I've had to break down psychoanalysis as clear and concise as possible and i think like i did a terrible job so as psychoanalysis says fail and fail better so hopefully right. the next time i get it right at failing right <laughs> this was great anyways yeah. yep. thanks out. for having me my only hope is that when enough people become pessimist then out of despair somebody maybe 
does something. But you know why I also like to be a pessimist? Because it's the only way to have a nice life. If you're an optimist, then always bad things happen and you are always uh, disappointed. When you are a pessimist, then you look around, okay, there are bad, but from time to time something nice happens and you are, as a pessimist, you are a little bit glad all the time, no? You are listening to One Dime Radio. Become a patron at patreon.com slash one dime to support the show and get access to extra content.